All right. I'm short and I don't have on heels. Hope you can see me via my tippy toe. I'm a little, I'm a little bitty thing. Say little firecracker. Okay. Good evening. My name's Teresa. I'm an alcoholic. Grateful to be here. Grateful to be sober because of a loving God. All righty. I was looking forward to hearing Earl tonight. <laughs> I was gonna <laughs> kind of gonna knock this out earlier today and get to chill out for the rest of the day, but that didn't happen. So he goes on my inventory list tonight. <laughs> oh, some stuff out of the way. Um, oh boy, I want to thank the committee so much for asking me to come out. Thank you for hosting and just back and forth. And you know, there's been a lot of effort and energy. Um, what it takes to put on a conference, I just get to sh you know show up. One of a gentleman from our home group calls the committee our shadow warriors. And they're the folks that get the brunt of everything, right? They work all year long, which I'm amazed they stay sober and don't kill each other, right? <laughs> Bunch of drunks working together all year. Um, so I'd like to give them a round of applause because it's a big deal to pull this thing together. <laughs> well, I only got to do this for like an hour and I'm out, but you know. Um, all righty. There's a few things that I always got to do, and this just, um, it's necessary that I do it. I, I have to get some things out of the way, and these are the things that stand in the way of my usefulness to you. And if I don't get them out the way first, the rest of my share is really weird, right? Because I'm going to be acting like I'm cool and I know what I'm doing, and, and really I don't. Um, <laughs> And that is that this continues, and I think it will always be this way. It has yet to change in all these years. I find this still to be very awkward. This is awkward. This is uncomfortable. I'm extremely vulnerable right now when a whole room is staring at me. You know, it's like, could you all turn your heads and look in the back of the room? Um, I, I just, I don't like it. I, I don't like it. I keep having conversations with God and my sponsor. Like, don't you think it's enough, you know? Obviously not, because there I am. Um. <laughs> and on our way after dinner, somebody called me, you know, from Canada to go, like, 2016. I'm always, I always throw people off when they call me, because they're all excited. You hear my CD, and they call me. Can you come out and speak 2016? I'm like, really? <laughs> really? Well, there goes my glass of wine tomorrow, you know. <laughs> to stay sober to 2016? Really? <laughs> They're like looking at the phone like, who is this? Anyway. I'm like, whatever, one day at a time, you know, so. <laughs> I don't like it. Um, <laughs> mess up a girl's drinking, you people in AA, boy. I don't. I don't like planes, trains, buses. Um, you know, I'm claustrophobic. God got a sense of humor, man. So far, everything I don't like, I have to do in AA. <laughs> God and I have yet to get on the same page with that. Anyway, so here I am, and I'm here because my life depends on it. You know, 
This is a life and death errand. I don't do this because I like it. it. I think it's cute. Certainly, I know a lot of speakers. Um, some of them love it. Can't wait to get to the podium. But I never have. I, I prefer to sit in the back of the room and be quiet and you don't see me. Um, so again, God has a sense of humor. I really believe that if he doesn't put me in front of you, you'll probably lose me. Yeah. And I certainly can't forget what it was like. <laughs> um, and I know for a fact that when I got here, there was someone behind this podium. And I don't know if they didn't want to do it, if their sponsor made them do it, or they hated it, or they had a bad day. I just know that they were there. And they carried a message to me. And for that, I'm responsible. And I got to give it away in order to keep it. And so if you're new, I'm not here because I'm going to get a toaster or a brownie if you join. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't hire me to recruit anybody. Um, I'm here because i got to stay sober, man. It's somewhere in here. I just hope that the message of hope comes across and, and the seed is planted. Uh, my sobriety date is March 29, 1990. It's been an interesting panel. Usually I'm the baby of the group, uh, but you've had a lot of speakers, so that's kind of been weird. Um, I know it looks like I got sober when I was 10, right? You guys are like, What? <laughs> I, too, like Allison, am tripping, right? I'm 40, and I'll be 50 this year. You know, so I'm like, ah, you know. Got gray hair. I don't know what's going on. Um, and I was noticing when you shared it earlier that the older people were like, whatever. You know, I don't care, you know. I'm like, you already went through it. Can you just have some sensitivity to my process? You know. folks in here, you know, they're like 70, 80 looking at you like, yeah, yeah, you know, but whatever. (laughs) You were young once. So anyway, oh goodness. And I've been sharing this a lot and perhaps I'll share it until the story changes and that is that I'm an interesting uh, period in my sobriety and because the time has equaled out. We talk about living two lifestyles in one lifetime. And I certainly have. What's been interesting for me now is that I came to you at the age of 24. And I've been here 24 years. So I've had this equal amount of time on both of these experiences. And it's getting a little weird for me. That's all. My identity is getting a little strange. And I've grown up in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Ah. I'm always like, this is God's gig. I'm like, any time now, people staring at us. (laughs) I'm over here stalling, you know what I'm saying? Like, any time you want to jump on in. um. (laughs) Just saying, I showed up, you know, do your thing, man. Um. (laughs) Jeez, all right. So it's been nice since I've been here. I don't know if I've been here before. Um, This is Iowa. It's so funny, I go around today sober like I'm still drunk in some ways. I travel a lot of places and don't remember I've been there. I go there so often. I was telling them in the car, I went to Houston, and someone said, have you been here before? And I was like, no. And somebody else was like, you've been here three times, Teresa. (laughs) I'm like, whatever, whatever. (laughs) 
But certainly during dinner, they've had their share of experience with me. I think she was saying I was funny because I'm the only one at the table that can't eat what you guys serve me. I've, I've sent the food back. I don't like it that way. So whatever. I'm a picky eater. Okay. Here I am. All right. I want to no- welcome our new friends. Welcome home. We've been praying for you. Uh, I will always continue to share that because I heard it when I got here. And there is this moment of silence and prayer and meditation, and it takes place in every meeting all over the world. And I've been to a lot of meetings just about all over the world. And it happens there. And there is this moment of silence. And so I always like to invite the newcomer to really consider that. That you're here because of the grace of God. And I want to welcome you home. I always tell the newcomer that this isn't your idea. You don't get credit for this one. That you've been given a gift, and it's a gift unearned. And we ask you to keep coming back, and don't leave five minutes before the miracle happens. And let us love you until you can learn to love yourself. And it's going to be all right. Just hold on. And even though the newcomer is the most important person in the room... And you really, really are. We need you. But I don't know where I would be if it wasn't for the old timers. So I want to thank all the old timers in the room. Thank you for my life and my sobriety. I still want what you have, and I don't ever want to lose that. I'm glad we don't get well around here. I'm glad that the old timers keep showing up. And they set the example. They sit in that seat, that same seat. That's their seat, week after week. Nobody else sits in that seat. That's their seat. I think I keep coming back, so I'm going to have my seat one day, you know? I watch them that they keep putting up the chairs and sweeping up the floors and extending their hand. And, and if you're new, to me, you know, how you can tell the old-timers usually is the most quiet person in the room. And they give you these one-liners. You know, I remember an old-timer in our group. He's already like 54 years old, and I had, you know, <laughs> in sobriety... And I had some of my, you know, some newcomers, my sponsors, guys said, go ask him how he did it. I knew what he was going to say, right? So they were pumped up. Go ask him. And all he goes is one day at a time. You're like, oh, that's deep, Herb, you know. (laughs) Tell the old timers, one-liners. You get one-liners. So, again, thank you for being here. We need you. I need you. No? I need you to continue to set the example. More importantly, to learn and show me how to live life one day at a time without killing yourself or somebody else. And what I appreciate, too, about the old-timers in our home group, I don't know if this happens here, but in our home group, we got some old-timers hanging out with each other 30, 40 years, and some of them still don't like each other. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I love one of them still gets up to share, and everybody rolls their eyes. (laughs) They've been doing that for 40 years, boy. We don't like them, but it keeps coming back, you know. You guys give me hope. I don't know. Some reason there's an attraction to that for me. But anyway. <laughs> what I get to do is I get to share in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we're like now. And there's a reason for that. If you're new in the doctor's opinion, our literature in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, he talks about depth and weight. It is the language of the heart. It is the music that I have found in these rooms that no one else could have ever captured my attention the way you've captured mine. No lover, no teacher, no family member, no friend. And I hope you hear the music 
For you see, it goes past your disease that's centered in your thinking. It goes straight into your heart. And once the seed's been planted, you can't drink the same again. So we've ruined your drinking forever. I know you've ruined mine. (laughs) And as I share with you in a general way, I invite you to listen to the similarities and not the differences. And as you listen to the similarities, you get to ask yourself some questions like, that happened to me. I felt that way too, and more importantly, perhaps this program can work for me. I don't ever want to forget that girl. Man, every time I talk about what it was like, I feel like I'm talking about myself in third person, like I'm talking about a stranger, no? There's so many stories in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've listened to so many and learned so much. It took a long time before I heard my actual story. So I'm grateful that you asked me and invited me to look at the similarities. Because you see, what I like most about the stories I hear in the room is similar to Allison, right, where you felt so awkward and out of place and, and for some reason you just couldn't fit in and felt strange. And somewhere along the line in your life, you were able to come across a drink and it made you whole and complete and, and filled you up. And it just like this marriage made in heaven, yeah? And you drank for a while, wonderful, fun career, and then you crossed some invisible line. And then things got really dark and bad and that jumping off point and then you crawled into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I like that story. And I used to talk about Marsha from the Brady Bunch with the pimple issue, but after hearing you, I can't really do that. I feel bad. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I used to rag her tripping on her pimple, you know? But anyway. But as the story goes for me, I'm born addicted. Um, My mother drank and used while I was in her belly. And as, you know, I go, as the story goes, my mother did not want another child. She was very happy with my brother. She loved him dearly. Uh, She had always hated my father. She only married him out of revenge or something like that from an ex-boyfriend. But she was really happy with my brother. But my mother, too, is an alcoholic, and I don't call her that because I label her that. She's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous with 28 years of sobriety. And so my mother drank, and she, she did everything possible to abort me. According to my mother, I am a product of rape. Yeah? My father has an entirely different perspective on that story. He wanted a daughter, and he wanted another child, and he felt that that was her wifely duty. And so I was born with this hatred that my mother had of being impregnated by me. And my mother did everything possible to abort me. Needless to say, I'm here, yeah? I was born a preemie, and I was born sick, and I was born addicted. Now, my mother left me in the hospital, and she told my father, you wanted it. You can have it. Keep it away from me. I don't want to see it. I don't want to touch it. And so my mother left me in the hospital. Now, my grandmother and my father came to get me. And according to them, when they brought me home, the only thing that would stop me from crying was alcohol. They tried to give me everything else, but that was the only thing that would soothe me. So they would put that in my bottle, and they would put it on my gums. Now, they came up with an idea because they wanted my mother to touch me, and time was going by, and she refused to even look at me. So what they decided to do was to take my brother and to leave me alone in the house with my mother. Now, according to my mother, when I began to cry, she put the pillow over her head to muffle out the noise, and she couldn't. 
So she went to the crib and she put the pillow in my face to shut me up. And then she remembered, if you give her alcohol, she'll stop crying. So from that moment on, my mother made sure I had alcohol in my system 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So I didn't learn about the four food groups that I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, okay? <laughs> I still got food issues. I still got challenges. I've had to learn how to eat here. So I'm very malnourished. And so needless to say, I was very sickly. I was always in and out of hospitals and malnourished and dehydrated. But my mother made sure that I had a continuous supply of alcohol. I cannot tell you when I made a conscious choice to drink. I think it's a little ridiculous. I don't know. I just know that I drank my whole life. I didn't know a life other than that life. That's all I understood. I I don't know. I, I drank in my house. I, I don't know anything about peer pressure or drinking at the prom or a party. I drank every day, all day. My brother never understood the dynamics of the relationship that my mother and I and alcohol had. And I got adjectives when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. One of them was you told me that I grew up in a dysfunctional family. As far as I knew, that was my family. Everyone in my family are alcoholics and or addicts. There's only four members of my family who are not, and that is my brother, my father, my grandmother, and my cousin Petra. Nobody wanted to be like them. Nobody looked up to them. We weren't excited when they came over. <laughs> Everyone in my family dies from either cirrhosis of the liver, kidney failure, falling down, cracking your skull, getting shot, ODing. They were my heroes and my role models. I grew up around pimps, hustlers, hoes, you know, prostitutes. And these were my uncles, my cousins, my aunts. It wasn't my neighborhood. This was in my house. I grew up in the projects in New York City. I'm this Puerto Rican girl with Puerto Rican, and the same thing that was going on in the projects in New York was the same thing that was going on in the mountains in Puerto Rico. It's still going on today. That's my family. I wasn't embarrassed. I wasn't ashamed. A lot of my uncles are heroin addicts. They were always nodding out. That very familiar situation for me, and I wasn't embarrassed. I didn't mind bringing my friends over from school. That's my uncle. He's nodding out. He'll finish right where he left off, because that's what they do. They have a conversation. They nod out. They come back. They finish right where they left off, just like nothing happened. <laughs> just give him a minute, and he'll finish the story. Just hold up. <laughs> So this was a lifestyle that I came from. There are other adjectives that you gave me when I got here, and that's abuse. You know? Talk about verbal abuse is what you told me. So I heard things like, you're stupid, you're ugly, we hate you, you disgust me, wish you were never born, you're an idiot, you're always going to be an idiot, and all other kind of language. That's all I heard. I didn't really come to understand that my name was Teresa until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. Another word you gave me was physical abuse. You know? People kicked me, punched me, spit on me. That was an everyday occurrence. You bounced me a mile, you, they hit me with irons, with brooms, with sticks, with whatever they had in their hands. That was normal. What's the other word you gave me? Sexual abuse. I lose my virginity at five. Men and women take turns with my body. To this day, I don't know if I was sold, but that's just the way it was. It was neighbors. It was family members. It's what they did. 
It was three sums. It was four sums. It was their room, that room, that man, that woman. I don't know. I've been in and out of mental institutions. I've seen enough two-way mirrors and ink blots. My mother was always in and out of mental institutions, so is it family therapy? I'm still tripping on those ink blots. I'm waiting for somebody to explain them to me because they all look like butterflies. I don't understand why we need to have this conversation with the freaking ink blots. I think they still do that today. I don't know. Now, I tell people, I don't know if alcohol talked to you, but it talked to me. I describe my relationship with alcohol like a love affair. For you see, alcohol said, if nobody loves you, I love you. If nobody wants you, I do. You don't need nobody. It's just you and me against the world. And you're going to go in there and you're going to smile on your face and you're going to handle your business. I didn't cry. I didn't pass out. I wasn't shocked or appalled. This is what it is. This is what you do. You see, I tell people the good old days for me is I can get sodomized, gang raped, and pistol whipped. And I go to the bathroom and I fix my hair. I put on my makeup. I straighten out my clothes. I take a drink and I go back out there all over again and say, who's next? This is a life I live. I wasn't planning on changing that life. At the same time, I went to Catholic school. I went to Catholic school for 11 and a half years. I put a uniform on and a smile on my face, and I said, the Our Father and the Hail Mary. I did my confession on Saturdays, and I took my communion on Sundays. I even sang in the choir. This is a life. And this is the life that I'm living. The very character defects that you've asked me to remove around here, I was breathing on. You can't survive the world I come from with those character defects. I hear so many people in the rooms talk about how grateful they are to get their families back. I had to stay away from mine when I got sober. They'll rub off on me before I rub off on them. I can't go around my family today and talk about love and tolerance. It's so cool. <laughs> I crack up on that one. It's true. To this day, when I go to Puerto Rico, my cousins pick me up. I buy them a six-pack. I let them smoke a joint, and we get on the road. They can't drive no other way. For me to ask them to drive sober, we're going to have an accident. And they don't know how. Like my cousin says, I see three rows, and I stay in the one in the middle. We're good. I went to Puerto Rico not too long ago. It was so funny. And a member of my home group came with me, and we were driving with my family. I'm like, you know we're driving with drunk drivers, right? <laughs> It's all good. <laughs> My happy place, you know, I didn't grow up playing Barbie doll, hopscotch, or jump rope. I grew up in bars, clubs, shooting galleries, and crack houses. To this day, sometimes that's a cozy place for me, man. Those red leather seats, those dirty rugs, and the glistening of the lights on the drinks. I've seen a lot of things. I've seen a lot of people shot, OD. I'm walking down the street with my cousin, and he gets shot. Oh, well, can't hang out with you no more. <laughs> Next. I was shut down, detached emotionally. I was never present for my experience. You know, a lot of people say, oh, what a horrific childhood. I wasn't present. And I wasn't planning on changing that life. Talk about incomprehensible. 
incomprehensible demoralization is a whole lot of things. That was my life. What invisible line? Burning bridges? I didn't establish a relationship to burn one. You got to have a bridge to burn it down. I don't have no relationships with nobody. I don't need you to love me. I don't love you. I'm not looking for long-term relationships. I don't need nobody where I come from. I didn't buy rounds for people. I wasn't about, oh, let's all be merry. I did it in my house. And this is mine. You get yours. I didn't share my booze. I cannot run out. The best example that I give is I smoke a pack of cigarettes a day. That's 20 cigarettes in a pack. If I give you one, that leaves me 19. That's a dilemma. It's <laughs> a problem. That throws me off. You know what I'm saying? And I didn't grow up like some movies that I see, like New Jack City, ooh, scary, and in the hood. It was more like Scarface before he didn't blow up the people. Because he should have just blew them up in the car. <laughs> I hung out with a lot of Colombians, a lot of cartel. This is a life. The whole lifestyle. As I said, I wasn't planning on changing that life. I really wasn't. There's a dynamic about it. There's something about being feared from everybody. I didn't know that I suffered from a soul sickness, from a spiritual malady. There was something that I had about pride, about being arrogant. See, they take pride in my family to be arrogant and egotistical. I walk down alleys at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. I dare you to come up on me. That's a lifestyle. The more dangerous was, the more I lived on the edge or took risks. I can run off with strangers and not tell nobody. There's an excitement about all of that. As I said, I wasn't planning on changing that life. I liked it. I thought I was going to die like everybody else in my family. And when you die in my family, we get your drink or your drug of choice. We put it in the coffin with you and we take pictures. And we celebrate your death. And we cry when a baby is born. So what happened to me? How did I end up here? <laughs> <laughs> All I can tell you is that something happened at the age of 24. You say alcohol stops working, and perhaps that's what happened to me. All of a sudden, I became present for my experience. And I think that's different. You see, I don't mind sleeping with strangers when I don't notice. I don't mind sleeping with cousin it when I don't notice. But all of a sudden, I began to notice. I remember sitting at a bar, taking out a drink, looking at you, and you were still ugly. Tripped me out. <laughs> I'm dead serious. Freaked me out. Because I know you're supposed to transform by now. You know what I'm saying? That's why you come in the bar, you don't look at nobody, you don't talk to nobody, you drink, then I'll talk to you because you'll look different in a minute. <laughs> and then I took another drink, and not only were you still ugly, I still went home with you. That's when I knew I had a problem. Something's wrong. <laughs> a 
all of a sudden I began to notice things. I walked into the bar and I heard them say, look what the trash bought in. Hmm. How long had they been saying that? You see, I can't tell you how long they said it, but I remember when I heard it. And that's different. And I tried to laugh it off and shake it off, but I couldn't. Something started happening to me inside. Certain words you give me around here like guilt, remorse. I didn't know what that was. Then I saw the look of disgust on my grandmother's face. I couldn't shake it off. And then I noticed that daddy stopped talking to me. When did daddy stop talking to me? More importantly, why do I care? Because I never cared. I didn't understand what was going on. All of a sudden, my world just was rocked. And I always say alcohol left me at the age of 24 emotionally retarded with no coping skills. And now I'm present in a world that I know nothing about. I've been drinking since fetus. I didn't know what to do. I don't know how to be present for this. I didn't even know that that was the sun. I just remember that the sun, there was light and it was very bright. And I asked somebody to turn that off. I said, turn that off. They were like, that's the sun. I was like, I don't know what that is, but it has to be turned off. It was so bright. I was doing the same things I had always done, but I began to notice. And I began to notice. And I wanted the good old days back. I wanted the days back where it just didn't matter. I really identified that with the guy in the book, you know, the tornado's over and he comes out, look, mom, the wind stopped blowing. You know what I mean? It's all good. The only person who has a problem is you who notice. I don't have a problem. But now I started to have a problem. And I couldn't take a bath because the water hurt my skin. And I couldn't look in the mirror because I don't know who she was. I don't know who that was. I couldn't dress me up enough. And I was lost. And I was confused and I was scared. You see, I don't get mad at the person who's still able to take a drink and have fun. I ain't mad at you. Sometimes I feel, pe- feel bad for people who relapse and it gets worse. I really feel bad for you. I have some people call me, I relapse, I feel bad. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I was hoping you would just have a good old time. Because <laughs> I tell people, don't get it twisted. I'm still waiting for science to one day accomplish it. I'm not playing. That's the only reason why I watch the news. I'm like, did they say they got a pill? What's happening? What's going on? <laughs> oh, my God. So you say alcohol stops working. We talk about only an act of providence. But for the grace of God. I'm pregnant on my fourth child. All my babies fall out in toilets and floors, all of them. Most of the time, I never even notice that I'm pregnant until after it falls out. And I clean it up or flush the toilet and keep walking. But this baby's not falling out in the toilet like the other babies, and it's doing strange things to my body. And everybody's moving too fast. And I need you guys to just slow down. And to me, it's a cold thing when you invite death into your life, and death don't even take you out. Where else am I supposed to go? What else am I supposed to do? Alcohol told me when to get up in the morning and when to go to bed at night. If I was going to work, if I wasn't, 
where I was going to live, where I wasn't going to live. If I was in a relationship, if I was not, and who I was in a relationship with. It dictated every single area of my life. How dare it betray me and not tell me what to do today. You told me not to forget my last drunk. All I remember was that I did the aimless walk, the walk with no purpose, no agenda, no destination. It's just a walk. And I ended up in a church. That's all. Wasn't looking for it. Wasn't planning to go there. I just ended up in a church. And I stepped inside this church, and I felt a presence. It's more like what I feel when I come into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's like you walk in the room. I still do that. I walk in the room, and I stop, and it just... I like how one of my buddy speakers says, get oxygen. You know what I mean? I feel like you just get oxygen. And I stepped in that side of that church, and I said a prayer. It's a prayer that's different, perhaps, than any other prayer. I know that it came from the depths of my soul. But was I completely done? Was I really surrendered? I don't know. An act of providence. All I know is that in this moment, there was the grace of God. And there I stood. They took about seconds and inches, man. I could have missed it. I stood in that moment, desperation, isolation, bewilderment. In that moment, that's all. And the grace of God, the window opened up. Could have missed it. And I said, God, please allow me to feel the peace that I feel in this church inside of me. I didn't want it forever. I just wanted a moment for my head to shut up. And for my stomach to stop turning and for my skin to stop crawling so I can get a grip. I had no idea that prayer was going to change my life. None. I didn't think anything was even listening to me. To this day, I still trip out on that. Like, what? what's going on? I, I didn't expect this. I really didn't. I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired of waking up another day like that. I couldn't live another 24 like that. I wanted the days back where I just didn't care. I wanted to no longer be present. And from there I went to my father's house. I knocked on his door. And daddy looked at me. Normally he would just open the door and walk away. And daddy looked at me. And what came out of my mouth was amazing. I said, daddy, help me. Now if anybody knows me, I never ask for help. Never. I ain't no punk. I don't come from that. I don't come from that world. There's rules where I come from. You can ask me for help. I'll help you all day long what you need. Because you see, you owe me for the rest of your life. So was God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself? That I said, Daddy, help me? I said, I'm tired, Daddy. I can't do this no more. And my father looked at me and said, with all the love that a father has for his daughter... He wished he could tie me up and put me in the closet, but he couldn't. I was a grown woman. He said, all the love that a father has for his daughter, I have to watch you die, and there's absolutely nothing I could do about it. We talk about powerlessness. He said, but I tell you what, you're standing in the middle of a crossroad, and there's three directions you're headed. You're so close to them, you could taste them, and you could smell them. And that's jails, mental institutions, and death. But there's another road, this thing called recovery. It's dark and mysterious. You don't know anything about it, and neither do I. 
But if you give it a try, and if it doesn't work out, the other three will be waiting for you. <laughs> I always say that that fact that my father shared with me then remains true to me to this day. And I got on a Greyhound bus and I headed out to sunny California where I thought everybody was sober. <laughs> I thought that was the sober state, actually. Even though I think they think it is. <laughs> and that's actually because the tradition that we have around here is called attraction rather than promotion. For you see, I tell you that my mother is sober. And I have a cousin that's sober as well. And they lived in California. Whenever I would visit, they would go to these meetings. And I would drink before, during, and after. And no time that I think the seed was being planted, I don't even think I was paying attention to you people. But when I was sick and tired of being sick and tired of being sick and tired, I remembered the faces of the people in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember your smiles, you know, that belly laughter that we do around here. The warmth and the camaraderie that you have with one another. More importantly, I remember that you never shunned me, sucked your teeth at me, shook your head at me, or tried to shove a pamphlet down my throat. And for that, I am truly grateful. Because I believe had you had done that, I'd have been willing to figure out how to die out there before I proved you right. And I got on that Greyhound bus, and that's where I detoxed. I threw up, I shook, I sweated, I hallucinated. I had my last drink in El Paso, Texas. There was a man on that bus who carried me from the bus depot to the bar because I was sick. I was having DTs. I hadn't been without a drink in my body since fetus. I was sick. I could have died on that bus. More people die from alcohol detox than anything else. I couldn't breathe. And the man said, I know what you need. You have to come with me. And he got me a drink. He held it to my mouth because I was shaking so bad I couldn't hold it. And I remember I slopped it up like a dog that had been out of water. And I'm so grateful for that man because I don't think I would have made it the rest of the way. And I arrived in downtown Los Angeles on March 29, 1990. Wearing a size one pair of pants with two pants underneath, a huge sweatshirt, four months pregnant with a dead baby in my belly, didn't have a heartbeat by the time I got there, haven't had the honor and the privilege to have a child since, and my mother picked me up, and she dropped me off in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got sober in South Central Los Angeles, and we came into that room, we halfway walked in, my mother looked at me and said, this is as far as I can go with you. Because you told her she can't help me. I could manipulate her. I could play off of her guilt. And she turned around and walked away, and she left me with the very people who saved her life. I always say I feel like a baby in a baby basket left at the doorsteps of Alcoholics Anonymous. <coughs> I am so proud of the breed that I come from. It was the old timers that picked up that basket. I get emotional when I talk about them. <laughs> This was the last house on the block. I didn't come here to play with you people. I couldn't do another 24 like this. And I was like, if you can't help me, somebody needs to blow my brains out. I could not be in my own skin. I came here terrified, confused. I didn't know nothing. They had to teach me everything from scratch. Like, that's a chair. You sit in it. I didn't know anything. I was spoon-fed this program. 
I was terrified. I came to you undisciplined, arrogant, egotistical, selfish, self-centered, no self-worth, no self-esteem. Didn't know it. Didn't have those adjectives. I'm so grateful for all those who came before me who loved me until I can learn to love myself. They told me things that nobody else would have ever told me before. I heard things from this podium. You guys just blew my mind. I always feel like I've been abducted by aliens or something. <laughs> In this strange new world. Not enough the culture is different. No, from, California, from New York to California... But you share things from this podium that I just didn't understand. You began to dismantle my reality. How are you going to tell me that it's not normal for people to have sex with you when they want to? What do you mean you're not going to beat me? Everybody beats me. Why are you people beating on me? I didn't understand. I was so confused when I got here. You don't want to call me names? Why are you calling me Teresa? Nobody's ever called me that. I'm an idiot. I'm stupid. I'm ugly. Don't you want to tell me how ugly I am? And you didn't do that. I didn't understand. I heard people share about, you know, having sex and using their body and prostitution. and the you got, I was like, and that's not normal? Why are you talking about something's wrong with that? They, too, had to teach me how to dress. Of course I used to come in the meetings half naked. I don't know any better. I'd prance up and down, getting coffee or 50 million times. Coming in, you know, fishnet stockings and boussier and what you call them, puta shoes. But, you know, they prostitute shoes. They're all high. And, <laughs> and I just love them. You know, I like the old timers would say, now, baby. I like when they call me baby. They say, now, baby. Who are you coming up in here looking for? You don't have to do that today, baby. I didn't know. I didn't know. And they taught me how to dress, and they took me, and they showed me. They told me to sit down, shut up, and listen, take the cotton out of my ears, put it in my mouth, and my best thinking got me here. They said, you don't know nothing. You can't even die right. <laughs> they gave me the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. They told me it was a textbook. It was meant to be studied. It was not a novel. They told me to examine my relationship with alcohol and to get honest for the first time in my life. That the very first step in recovery was to concede to my innermost self that I was truly alcoholic. And the only way for me to do that was to listen to you. They gave me a sponsor. I didn't pick one, interview them, change them. I don't know anything about that. Fire them, hire them. I don't get the language. They told me this woman is your sponsor. All I needed to know was that she had a working knowledge of the steps and the book. And I remember getting fancy, talking about, I thought you were supposed to find somebody you identify with. Trying to be cute. Had a moment. <laughs> they were like, you now identify with her. Sometimes I share my experience when I was new, and a lot of people, oh, Nazi AA, and I couldn't stay sober. <laughs> you know, the beauty of the old time is they knew who to talk to in what way. Because I have that experience now. I don't talk to all my sponsees the same way. I don't talk to all the newcomers the same way. They just had this way of knowing how to get my attention. 
They knew how to talk to me. If you would have talked to me any other kind of way, I would have wrapped you around my finger. You've been buying me dinner every night. They knew how to talk to me. I used to hear there's a simple program for complicated people. They used to say, keep it simple, stupid. It ain't that deep. You follow the black on the white. I didn't get an opportunity to process and talk about stuff with my sponsor. No, you follow the black on the white. If you want what we have, you do what we do. This is how thousands of men and women have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. This is how they did it. And is that my experience? If you be alcoholic, then you might want to do what they did. Am I willing to go to any lanes? Where I got sober, they just say, if you ain't done, man, there's the door. We're not here to convince nobody. My hat is off to you. Have one for me. I watch people in the rooms, their attentiveness and their dedication and their desperation to their sobriety. It was an attraction for me. I learned the traditions long before I learned the steps. My experience was like the experience that Bill had with Evie. It's what I saw in you that captured my attention. It was that light in you that I didn't understand what that was. What is that? How do I get that? And you said it. Deep down inside, every man, woman, and child is a fundamental idea of God, right? I'm supposed to find this higher power. Well, where do I find it? Inside of you, Teresa. How do I get there? Through the steps. It's not that deep. Just follow the map. I learned that I had to clean house, trust in God, be of service. They have brainwashed me. <laughs> and I remember used to say that you brainwash me. Say your brain needs washing. That's not a bad idea. Why are you complaining? And it says that, burn into the consciousness of every man. That's all I think of. Tr you know, trust in God, clean house, be of service. Trust in God, clean house, be of service. They told me, put up the chairs, sweep the floors. Nobody ever asked me to volunteer. A lot of meetings today. Anybody like to volunteer to clean up? I didn't have that experience. <laughs> and thank God, because I wouldn't have volunteered. If they would have said, clean the floor, I'd be like, no. <laughs> oh, you got to ask the Latina, right? Because we clean floors. <laughs> People of color, because I'm a minority. I got to clean, whatever. I always say I learned the traditions and appreciated them because they also helped me to keep coming back. That nobody was in charge. Fascinated me, even though that some people think they are. That's cute. <laughs> we just tell them to keep coming back. I love it. They swear they're running things. We're like, <laughs> keep coming back, whatever. <laughs> the AA police, we call them. I like the principles before personality helped me tremendously because I could have dismantled everything that I thought was wrong with you. And you took that tradition, took that away from me. It's none of my business whether you're short, tall, money, no money, rich, not rich, you have a car, no car, job, no job. Doesn't matter what you, your political views, what your sports views, doesn't matter. It's none of my business. Are you a drunk? That's all I need to know. And that's all you need to know about me. I tell people my first year, I was, I was, it was too much. People in my home group were like, she was, she was a lot. You see, English is my second language, so I took everything literal. Because I hear things in Spanish, and then I got to translate it back to English. So I've taken everything literal. 
And you told me I was a member because I say I am, because I have a desire. I used to, that's a big, I used to walk around going, I'm a member, okay, because I have a desire. <laughs> and you have to help me, okay? I don't like you either, all right? <laughs> but I'm a member. Oh, they used to drive them crazy. I am a member. I have a desire. You have to help me. I always share this. I remember I went to a meeting. I thought it was KKK. I swear. I thought it was KKK. It was early in the morning. It was Burbank. It was a unit A. Whatever. I thought they were KKK. So I go in the meeting, and I'm sitting like, this is a KKK meeting. I don't believe this with these KKK people. Whatever. So I raised my hand. I said, excuse me, I need to share. I don't care if you KKK, all right? <laughs> because I have a desire, and I'm a member. <laughs> You guys got to help the Negro today. As long as I don't see no rope around no tree, I'm not leaving. And they were like, we're not KKK. I was like, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm letting you know I'm not leaving. They were like, oh, my God, Teresa. So I took that tradition very serious. I began to do the work and I began to clean house and build a relationship with a higher power. I tell you, I have done the uncomfortable until it became comfortable. In the 12 and 12, it says all 12 steps are contrary to our natural desires. They're not meant to be comfortable. You never promised me no better roses. What you promised me is an opportunity for sobriety and a 24-hour increment. And I began to do the work. I don't know about doing the steps like exercises or homework, handing in some term paper to my sponsor, that this was a life and death errand, that these steps were designed for living. They were tools designed for living. You lay them at my feet. I need to pick them up and learn how to apply them to my life. I put down the drink, and I picked up the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got no gray area, people. None. None. I got to learn how to live all over again. And alcohol was always my higher power. So I need another one. And if I'm going to be present for my experience, I need some help. See, I some people, if you can guarantee me that I could take a drink and go back into a slate of oblivion, I'd probably do it. But I think I've lost those privileges. So here I am. And if I need to be here because the party's over, you need to teach me how I'm going to live life on life terms. Present for my experience. And so you arm me with some facts about myself. And then I learned that self-knowledge serves me nothing. And that no human power is going to relieve me of my alcoholism. That all my life I've reached outside of myself, and it's no wonder I've always come up short. You can't fix me as much as I want you to. That I got a deep hole inside of me, and the only thing that can fill it is a power greater than myself, as I understand it. And it has changed through the years. And that it was an inside job. And that you're as sick as your secrets. And I began to clean house. And clean house. Man, have I discovered some things. I have been transformed and changed. I have been a witness. I have become an observer. And I watch this program work. 
and I can't take credit for it, can't pat myself on the back. All you asked me to have was a mustard seed of willingness, just a mustard seed. And you told me to have an open mind and to get honest. And I've been in awe since I've been here all these years. I get emotional because it's an experience. It's like, really? Are you kidding me? What's happening here to me? I've watched myself become a lady. I've watched this woman turn into this woman of dignity and integrity and self-respect. I've watched it. I didn't say I'm going to become it. I've watched certain things just leave. I remember when I went to make amends, I had to go back to New York. And I got on a plane with a member of Alcoholics Anonymous with my list, and I knocked on doors. And for me, the promises come true at that point. Why? Because I asked God to remove my character defects on step seven, and I witnessed them removed when I walked in and made my amends. If I'm full of fear, there's no way I'm knocking on your door. If I'm selfish and self-centered, why am I making amends and apologizing for my behavior? I wouldn't do that if they aren't being removed. I've had spiritual experience after spiritual experience. How is this possible? That now these shortcomings, I'm watching them manifest. I've been tripping since I've been here. This is a whole other level, man. I see a lot of people say, oh my goodness, thank you so much, Teresa, for your kindness and your compassion, your consideration. I'm like, you need to thank God, because I had a whole entirely different perspective how to handle the situation. (laughs) That's not how I was planning for this to go down. Trust me. Where I come from, you lose your legs. The fact that you got teeth and legs, I'm fascinated. The next thing you know, what comes out of my mouth is, thank you for sharing. Hmm. Life's been in session. As I say, I've done the uncomfortable until it became comfortable. There isn't a whole lot in my sobriety that I've done cheerfully. Where I've heard a lot of people talk about the changes, whether it's going to school or getting a career or getting their families and developing families, I think that's beautiful. My 24 years in sobriety has spent time dismantling the reality that I came from. Hmm. and thawing out, getting to know me. I've had to grow up around emotional lines. I came to you emotionally an infant. You see me when I was two, scary. In my fifth year of sobriety, I met God butt naked alone with a white flag up my ass. That was very painful. <laughs> very painful. I was homeless. I lost everything. And I didn't take a drink no matter what. Because what you told me. And I put one hand in God and one hand in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was no longer the CEO of Teresa Incorporated. And I began to be very clear on God. What will you have me do? What will you have me be? I've been a caregiver. All of a sudden, the girl who everybody hated in the family, who was worthless, who was nothing, a piece of crap is the one that's been caring for them, taking care of them. Trippy. I remember not too long, my, I overheard my brother telling my cousin, can you believe Terry's taking care of me? Like, what? I've had the honor to learn how to love around here. My heart has gotten really big. 
And as I said, my brother, my cousin, my grandmother, you know, they were the only ones sober, so that's the only family I really had when I got sober. And it was a privilege to be in their life, knowing to be a daughter and a sister. It was awesome, man. I liked it. There are many things in recovery that I've enjoyed and I've been so full of gratitude about, and there are many things around me I don't like. And I'm grateful to come into the meetings and be honest about all that. I get scared when I'm around a lot of meetings where everybody's happy. Where every time you go and they're like, oh, bless, oh, grateful, I'm like, you scaring me. Because that's not reality. I'm sorry. Life's in session. Things happen. I'm just grateful that we're not all crazy on the same day. That's really cool. That we all take turns. You know what I'm saying? One day you're falling off the handle and I'm all serene and zen. You know, I'm like, it's all good. And then the next day I'm like, ah! And you're like, it's all good. Like, I love that. Oh, gosh. I tell you recently, and I shared about it during our lunch, you know, ugh. I just, you know, whoa. I'm having a new experience these last few years, and everything in my sobriety has been a new experience pretty much. But I've really thought out. Um, and these last few years, I'm just learning about grief, loss, pain, sadness, and now throughout my sobriety, I've always been obedient. I always use the word obedient. Before I got here, I was obedient to drugs and alcohol and or whatever anybody had, sex, physical abuse. I was obedient. I always said yes. And I came in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I always said yes. I never said no. I said yes, yes, yes. And the last couple of years, I've been feeling defiant, you know. I don't know. It's a new experience where I'm like, I don't want to do that. It's like really weird. I don't know if it's the power of choice. I don't know. It's just strange. I'm growing up or something. I remember when I turned 18 in sobriety, I was so excited to vote at business meetings, you know, because you vote at 18. And... So I kept going to a lot, anybody's business meeting. I want to vote. You know, I'm 18. Whatever. I'm 18. Whatever. But, yeah, I've been in a place lately. Um, I've lost. I've shared about this. Um, I lost my brother and my father. I both had to go on life support and take them off and make a whole lot of choices about their health care. I and mean, my whole thing is I'm the baby. And, and I wanted my brother to be around. I really enjoyed being a sister. I just did. Um, it's been kicking my butt. You know, and a lot of people, I've heard a lot of people in the rooms talk about losses and when people die and we stay sober and, and you're grateful that you've had an opportunity to be in their life. And I'm not there yet. I um. I'm just not. I, I don't know. I just remember saying I just need a minute. <laughs> I kind of like this. Whether it's selfish or not, I liked it. Um, that's all. I just liked it. I miss my brother. I talked to him. We used to talk every day. And it was just difficult making those decisions just like it was looking at my father, look at me right in my eyes when he took his last breath. Again, a lot of people say, what a beautiful thing. And I go, you got to hold on a minute, man. I was present for that experience. <laughs> See, being present has been the whole journey of our sobriety. <laughs> and if God is in everything, then God is in that. And I don't want anybody to take that away from me. 
And so what I've invited people, my support group, people around me, is like, don't take away the sadness that I feel because that has to be God too. Because that meant that I loved and now I'm experiencing loss. That has to be necessary. That's a part of life. And everything that I've learned from you, I pass on to my nephews. I've had the honor and the privilege to help raise my nephews. I don't have my own kids. But my brother gave me the honor to, you know, help raise these boys because he was a single dad. And everything I learned from you, I pass on to them. And I'm not going to turn to my nephews when they're sad that their father died and say, this too shall pass. I need to learn to look at them and go, I get it. I remember as soon as my brother died and we saw that flat line thing and that, that thing went flat, I looked, I didn't know what to do, and I turned around and I started walking down the hall and my nephew followed me and I got to the, you know, we were in ICU and I got in the kitchen and I looked at him I said, okay, look, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do this. I don't know am I supposed to be screaming? I'm supposed to be on the floor? Am I supposed to be hugging you? Am I supposed to be supporting you? I have no clue. But what I do know how to do is I know how to make coffee. <laughs> so we're gonna make coffee and then we'll figure out what we do for Mia. Wait a minute. <laughs> and it was so cute. My nephew was like, I get it, Titi. It's the first time you lost your brother, it's your only brother, the first time I lost my father, I don't know what to do either, so we'll make coffee. <laughs> we'll figure it out from there. I will tell you if there's anything that I've looked at is I look at these boys that we talked about in the car, right? Their mom showed up after my brother died and took them. She said, those are my kids, and she was right, even though she had been gone for the last 15 years and 11 years. She said, you got to stay away from us, and those are my kids. And, ooh, thank God for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, where we pause when agitated. And you gave me the gift of compassion to understand. I understood where she was at. I was a threat to her, No. Those kids knew me, and they didn't know her, and she was scared. You know, and a lot of my family were very angry that she came and took them and felt they should be with me, and they wanted to be with me, too. The only thing they've ever known was myself and my brother. And, you know, and I turned to my family and go, it's not fair. There's so many women that I've had the honor and the privilege to work with in the rooms that I've helped them to get their kids back. How can I now say she doesn't have that same privilege? That's just not fair. And I believe she should have the opportunity. And as long as she, you know, I'll keep turning it over to God and trust that she'll know that I'm not the enemy, no? But overall, I look at these boys. About time? Okay. I look at these boys and I just see that their life is so different from what my brother and I came from. And I've been watching them now more than ever. Where nothing of my experience of the past, they've even braised against them that they've learned these healthy tools that you've given me around here, that they get to turn around and go, I'm uncomfortable, that hurt my feelings, can you give me a minute, you know? Even recently, the oldest one, and they moved, their mom moved them from their school and everything, they've changed everything. And recently, he smoked marijuana, and he told me, he said, you know, I told you I didn't try marijuana, just the kids were I was hanging out with, but I did. I said, I figured as much. And, you know, and then he said, I tried it more than once. I said, I figured as much. And then he said, you know, but it didn't, you know, I didn't get high. I'm like, that's messed up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you need to talk to that guy who gave you the weed, man. That ain't cool. <laughs> gave you some bump weed, dude. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm 
home is though when I'm talking to them, I got to catch myself. Because even the little one, I forgot he said something about a teacher he didn't like or somebody in school. And I was like, you want me to jack him up? What's their name? And I was like, okay, wait a minute. I was like, digress, digress. Okay. <laughs> he looked at me like, really? I was like, all right, we don't do it anymore. Okay, hold on. <laughs> but he told me I'd smoke marijuana. And these are the things that I learned from you. I, you know, I've never said to them they have the ism. And because everyone in our family are alcoholics that... They're susceptible and that they're going to me. I don't, I, we, my brother and I have never imposed that on them. What I got to share with him was my concern. And what my concern was is this, and because this is what I've learned from you, right? That most people drink and use as a result of the spiritual malady. And that my concern with him is that I know that people experiment and they always do that. That's normal. My biggest concern was the fact that he had just lost his father. He's with his estranged mother. He's in a new school. He had been in seminary all this time, which is very eclectic, United Nations, you know. And now he's in Burbank, California, which is predominantly, you know, white. And it, he's going through a lot of changes, and they're calling him nigger. And he's feeling uncomfortable, and he never experienced that before. And he's not fitting in, and he's in that puberty, you know what I mean? He's breaking out, and the girls don't want to go to him. He's got too much going on right now, man. You got too much going on. And what I don't want you to do is I don't want you to rely on something that I know will fix it. Because right now what's empty on the inside, it will fill it, but it will be temporary. So I want you to do me a favor is what I told them. Why don't we hold off on that for a minute? Let me give you some other tools so you can process this. And when you get to the other side, try it and see if you need it. Because, see, what I learned is that many people who are normal drinkers don't need to not be themselves because they're very happy with who they are. And I want you to be yourself. And he thought about it. And he said, you know what? You're right. I agree. Let's go that route. That's because of Alcoholics Anonymous that I get to share that with him and I get to give him some other tools on how to process the stuff that he's experiencing in his life today. And I'm really grateful for that that I get to set an example and be an attraction in their life, and I get to walk the talk, no, because that's what you taught me, that I get to live this program in and out of these rooms and wherever I go. They see me always being of service. They always say, Dita, you're going to go help the people? Yes, I'm going to go help the people. And then they always want to help the people themselves. I look at these boys today. I haven't been grateful about a lot of things, no, because I'm just in a lot of grief. But these boys continue to give me hope, and I look at them as the future, that they're the new generation in our family line that's no longer riddled with the dysfunction and the insanity, and that one wants to be a baseball player, and the other one wants to be a basketball player, and they're diligent, and they practice, and they show up, and they learn about discipline. You know what I mean? That's, like, huge to me. And no one's molesting them, and no one's beating on them. That they hear words that I didn't hear. They hear words like, wow, awesome, you're fantastic, I believe in you, I love you. Hmm. Recently, the young one likes to compose music, and he was showing me these new things he put together. And I said, you know, I want you, I think it's awesome, because I think you're awesome. Everything you do is just great. But what I'd like you to do is let my friend hear it, because she's more critical than me, because I'm your aunt, and it doesn't matter what you do, I think it's great. <laughs> <laughs> so the music could be horrible, but I'm like, you're great, you know? <laughs> so I really want you to hear somebody with an objective ear. <laughs> he 
He was like, thanks for your honesty. Anyway, I love that. So life's in session. Here I am in Iowa. I don't want to be here. I like to be at home no matter what, and I was sharing about this. I have, um, I'm inundated with this program, whether I like it or not. <laughs> My feet are trained, and as much pain as I am, I don't know how to not to show up. I'm in a lot of physical pain. I have fibromyalgia. I have a torn rotator cuff. Um, I haven't worked in years. I've been a caregiver to uncle, one of my biggest abusers, who died from cancer. I set up hospice six times for him. I haven't worked since 2005. I've been living on the grace of God and help from people in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I travel the world without a dime in my pocket, and I just show up. I don't know if you're going to feed me. I don't know where I'm going to stay. I just show up. I stay on the phone, and I talk to people. don't know if I'm going to have that phone for so long, and Month every month that passes by, I don't know where the roof over my head will be and the food in my stomach. And it's just, man, those stories along of how I've been living, it's very interesting. <laughs> it's real different. <laughs> my mother has Alzheimer's, and I take care of her. And I remember when the doctors told me she needed care, I remember saying, you need to give me a minute, man. <laughs> Because as much work as I've done, I'm, I believe I'm not waiting for her to be a mom because she really doesn't know how. But the little girl in me, some part of me is just waiting for her to show up. And what you're telling me and the little girl is hearing is that she's never coming. So you just got to give me a minute, that's all. And the very woman who left me and has continued to be a, my, abusee, my abuser, even in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, <laughs> you got to just give me a minute. You tell me I got to take care of her. I believe my mother deserves love and compassion and understanding, and I continue to do the dance for her, and I do the best I can taking care of her. When my brother died, he would handle things financially, and I can't because I'm taking care of her, and that's all I could do all day is go to hospitals and doctors. I barely eat myself, but I make sure her needs are met, and now she's living by herself, and I'm her only caregiver, and my mother curses me out all day. She blames me for killing her son. Um, I hear it all the time. I took her baby from her. And I just show up, and I pause, and I pray, and I ask God to remove these things from me, and I be of service to this woman. And I practice the gift of forgiveness, but sometimes I'm good at it, and some days I'm not. There are times I just, you know, I tell her, you know, you could drink, and I won't tell nobody. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you could drink, you won't remember. Um, with mom because anyway she goes she was taking like 30 year cake she didn't have 30 years I was like she's not 30 everybody's like whatever she doesn't even know anymore <laughs> but I'll share this real quick about mommy I stopped saying from the podium because you guys recorded that I want to kill her because I watch those ID channels and if something happens they're going to come looking for me <laughs> I'm going to have it recorded anyway but I remember years ago I my mother was the last person that I uh wanted to make amends to. It was hard. It took me nine years to make amends to mommy. And I was willing, but that was a rough one. For years, I blamed my mother for me being in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I'm an alcoholic because I like the effect produced by alcohol. That's why I'm an alcoholic. (laughs) But this woman had told me a story, and I got the story. It took a minute. 
She talked about the queen of the underworld and queen of the, you know, whatever. It was a huge story. And I remember I ended up going to mommy, and I said to her that it had it been arrogant of me to think that she should be something other than she is. For I have not walked in her shoes, and I do not know the depth of her pain. And that I was there to cry for her. And I remember my life changed. Because I don't know her story. My mother and I have done the dance. I have been willing to go to any lames, and I ask God to put me where he would have me be and what he will have me do. He is my employer and my director. When I go to the bank or I fill out any application, they ask me who my employer is, and I put God. <laughs> and I'm dead serious. We have staff meetings. Sometimes he's a silent partner, and sometimes he gives me memos. But I'm doing the best I can with mommy today, but it's getting a little rough since I've been here. I know she's called 20 times. And, but I've been living like that for a lot of years now where I live with the phone near me and waiting for any tragedy to fall. And part of me is just a little tired, you know, been doing that for a long time. And so for some reason, that's why I mean defiance. I've always been like, okay, God, well, okay, God. Recently, I've just been complaining just a little bit. I mean, like, I want to do what I want to do. Like, that's just a new experience for me. I don't know if it's because I'm 24. But I've been hearing things from people that I didn't hear before. You know, I hear people go, I'm going on vacation, or I'm going to buy a car, or I'm buying a house, or I want to go do this now, or the spa. Like, I don't get to do any of those things. I've done, you know, it's very interesting. So I'm having a, it's bothering me because I don't want to get ungrateful and, so I'm just in a weird place like that right now where, you know, recently when, I would always go wherever anybody says to me, like, go eat that or go in there and you're going to eat that. And I go, okay, that happened recently in Canada. And I went in there and I was like, I sat down and started crying. Leave it up to an Al-Anon. You know, she came up to me, what's the matter, honey? <laughs> I was like, I don't want that sandwich. Oh, I don't want to eat that sandwich. What's wrong with me? Oh. I normally, and so anyway... That's just the new experience I'm having now, too, is these wants. And it's scaring me because the wants make you irritable. And I don't know. It's, I don't like it. I don't like these wants because I don't know. I'm freaking out about them because they may not happen. I don't know. I'm weird. I'm, I don't know. There's too much going on. Oh, my goodness. And so I've been telling people, you know, I just want to, like, tell you if you're new, my biggest thing today is they tell me that my experience will benefit others, and I swear this better benefit somebody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, for real. <laughs> ah, telling you. Because they tell me whatever I'm going through is not about me, right? So I'm like, this better help somebody because I don't like it. But it's kind of like I'm in a place today where, you know, part of my message is that you could be uncomfortable and stay sober. Like, you know, I'm not trying to just feel good. You can't always feel good. So I'm just in a place where my body hurts. Emotionally, I'm like a basket case. And it has nothing to do with self-pity and depression. I've inventoried this. It's not untreated alcoholism. This exists. It's called sadness. It's called grief. It's called loss. It's called things being uncomfortable and different. And what I get to do is I get to be in that. And I tell people, don't take that away from me. Because this is God and this is necessary. Because this is life. 
and I get to not pick up a drink. And I don't know if it's going to pass. What if it never does? Can I stay sober is what I ask God. If this net, we always tend to go, this too shall pass, as though I get it. You know, in the beginning, it helped carry me. But what if this never passes? Am I willing to stay sober in this? Yes, God. If I need to stay this way, to stay sober, I'm willing to do it. And I don't know how not to give this thing away. I don't know how not to work a step. I don't know how not to go to a meeting. And sometimes that upsets me. I want to be like spiritually sick or something just for a minute. (laughs) You know, that's the old me trying to come in some kind of way, I think, infiltrate me. You know what I mean? I want to like, I don't know, do something bad. I don't know. (laughs) Going through it right now. Should I steal? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. I'm just tripping. I'm all over the place. That's why I would have preferred Earl to be here right now. <laughs> but I know that God is doing for me what I cannot do for myself. So now, what I always like to say, I don't say if I can do it, you can do it. I think that's arrogant. What I say is that if God can take a girl like me, unloved, unwanted, unnecessary, and insignificant... And he's such a show-off. And if he could pick me up, dust me up, build me up so you could see what he can do, that's a show-off. That's what I call God a show-off. I'm sorry. (laughs) What I say is if he could take a girl like me, could you imagine what he could do for you? Hmm. This feeling of peace is just crazy. Despite the storm, I feel this weird mixed emotion. Anyway. So if nobody told you they love you today, I do so much. And again, if you knew you deserved to be here, God don't make no junk. At least that's what I've learned. So I want to thank you guys so much for loving me, for allowing the God in you to help find the God in me. And so that I, in return, can do the same for others. Again, I want to thank you for my life and thank you for my sobriety, and I'm going to keep coming back. Thank you.